It's the shortest day of the year and the longest night. Dark, cold, and full of mystery, it's a time when the veil separating this world from the next is thinnest. And sometimes, the strangest things get through. Today, we're sharing stories for the winter solstice. Welcome to Shadowland, everybody. Welcome. This is a podcast that shines a spotlight on stories of the supernatural, mysterious, eerie, and unexplained. Stuff like road trolls. (laughs) (laughs) Pagan Christmas. Ice gnomes. Elves. Multiverse theory. Hollow Earth. Quantum entanglement. Ceremonial magic. Ghost sex. Stargates. Ghost divorces. Spirit gates. Life on Mars. Real life gremlins. All that stuff. All that stuff and more. Lots more. I'm Christina Callery. And I'm Seth Jablon. And today we're sharing stories about... The solstice. The winter solstice. The winter solstice. The darkest day of the year. Yep. So this is our holiday special. Yeah, and like I'm, I'm excited about it. Like I, you know, I love, I love a pagan Christmas. And uh, yes, I know you do. And we're also, we're also going to do some. We're going to do a little uh, gift exchange as well, right? Yes. Yeah, stay tuned for the end okay. of the show because we've got at like, the end, we'll do it at the end. Okay. Yeah, okay. Seth and I are going to exchange gifts, and you guys can listen in. AKA stories. Um, yes. Uh, so the solstice. I mean, we've definitely done some, you know, winter. Um, winter solstice, or, or sorry, uh, rather, um, pagan, you know, myths and legends and stuff before. Um, I guess we did Icelandic, and I can't remember what we did else, but Krampus. I'm just always all of that. Krampus, right? Yeah. Krampus, yes, Krampus. Um, yeah, and I just, you know, I love how you know these, you know, these myths that they they like kind of live on forever. They sort of like pass from generation or civilization to civilization, and they're sort of like reborn, they they are refined, they evolve, they mutate, you know, they become new things. But very often there's something that sort of persists through all of them, a spirit, if you will, uh, that um, pervades them all. So anyways, I'm, I'm super excited about this one. Yeah, me too, me too. Mine, uh, um, I'm going to take a little bit of a departure, but it's still along the yeah. same lines. I'm, I'm going to totally. share some ghost stories. Yes. Which is well, a which is a very slash holiday right? tradition. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. Why don't you go first, though? Okay, cool. You know, mostly I want to just talk about some of the the myths here and, and some of the traditions, and just sort of like tracing at least sort of the the European ones, sort of back and back, right? So, so, but first, let's just talk for a moment about what the winter solstice actually is. Um, so, you know, for those who don't know, I feel like I don't know in recent years. People have been more aware of it or talked about it more. But um, for those who don't know, the winter solstice is also called um, the hibernal, uh, hibernal, hibernal solstice. It's the shortest day of the year um, occurring when either of the poles reach their maximum tilt away from the sun, right? So for the northern hemisphere, that happens on the 21st of December. Um, and for the southern, that actually happens in June right? Since they're, 
everything's upside down. So um, for the uh, particular uh, hemisphere in question, the sun is at its lowest in the sky. Um, and so then, you know, either pole is then sort of thrust into a continuous twilight around its uh, solstice. So this shortening of daylight um, and maximum increasing of darkness, along with the obvious marking of the winter to come, is all seen as sort of contributing to the thinning of the veil between the visible and invisible worlds. So, um, you know, there's different, in different traditions that, that, that happens at different times specifically, but in general, it all kind of happens in December, right? Um, and so this is a time and a particular day that has, you know, likely been celebrated by human beings since time immemorial. So as far back as we look, um, again, especially in, in Europe, it's an event that is um, long held reverence as the completion and renewal of a sacred cycle the sun, right? Which is, uh, sorry, um, the year, which is obviously um, Earth's course around the sun. So it's been called the time of the new sun, um, and it signifies uh, birth as well as death, um, as they are inexorably bound in the endless cycles of nature. So um, the Druids uh, marked this um, this time as sacred, um, is a time that was later dubbed as the Alban Arthrin, um, there were likely lots of ceremonies we didn't know of, though some do remain, um, such as one where the sort of high priest cuts mistletoe from the branches while others um, catch it before it hits the earth. Um, they also exacted, they didn't make out. Uh, <laughs> they didn't make out. <laughs> That's right. Oh, right, because of mistletoe. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. I didn't actually pick that one up. But mistletoe, I guess it's been around for a long time. I'm sure there was some sort of significance around it. And there's obviously some color significance because, um, right, mistletoe has a sort of red berries, green leaves. Um, uh, but they also, the Druids also erected uh, a monument, which um, everyone probably knows, now called Stonehenge, um, that tracked astronomical occurrences and one of the central ones being the solstice. So at that time of the year, um, the sun shines through a narrow gap between the stones, marking a precise moment of death and rebirth of the coming year. So, uh, you know, this moment of the birth of the new sun is is thought to sort of revivify, re-enliven um, the earth and the sort of spirit worlds and sort of give them new life um, and new life to the souls of the dead, right? So th there are some sort of similarities, I think, to... Um, you know, to Halloween, right? Like this idea of, of, you know, more activity in that world, the veil being thinner, um, some of the souls of the dead's coming out or coming through. Um, some descriptions I read kind of tracked the beginning of that actually lasting from, you know, beginning from Halloween and lasting all the way until the solstice. So, um, but, uh, you know, the, um, but the, the main one that I wanted to talk about was the tradition of Yule, right? So um, like many traditions, ancient pagan ones were spread, you know, they were adopted, they were refined by each new people that um, they would come into contact with. Uh, and the winter solstice uh, is, is a time around which many of them have evolved, right? So um, you know, like I said, the Yule is, is one of them. Um, the, the word Yule is actually Germanic uh, in origin um, and comes from the Old Norse uh, 
Yol, like J O L. Um, so Yol is a festival that was historically derived um, from the wild hunt, which is a is a myth. It's a sort of a folklore motif that depicts this otherworldly chase hunt led by these um, mythological figures. Um, some have the like lead hunter as Odin um, or some such god, right? And usually they're um, escorted by some sort of ghostly or supernatural uh, group of hunters, and they're engaged in this pursuit, right? They're they're often depicted on you know riding atop horses, um, and then this is something that that happens in the sky. And I think um, I think one place I read even said that the ghost riders in the sky from Blues Brothers movie was based off of that but or johnny um, cash it's a great version well, of that i used to love that as a kid oh yeah what what was the what was the johnny cash song was it called that ghost or? riders in the sky oh ghost riders, ghost in, the riders okay, yeah, so. in the sky okay yeah oh okay interesting um so you know the hunters are usually sort of the souls of the dead um sometimes um ghostly dogs or fairies valkyries and so on um but basically, um, you know, the, the Yule has sort of around it has collected a number of traditions. Some of them probably predate. Um, some of them were sort of born, you know, during that time, I, I assume, in sort of Germany, although, you know, who knows what where Germany was Germany uh, back then, right? The, um, the borders were obviously quite different. But, um, you know, we know that up in the mountains, they had their own little sort of like um, microcosms of mythologies. Um, but anyways, the, the Yule, the Yule log, the Yule goat, the Yule boar, Yule singing, um, they all have their sort of pagan origins. Um, so the Yule log is, is obviously one of the more important ones. Um, the Yule log burned during the 12 days of Christmas. Um, and there's different, you know, uh, I read different things about like what the, origin of that was. Um, and one of them was certainly that it, it represented a sacrifice and some even believed uh, human originally. So, um, but certainly the idea of um, a log burning or a hearth or a fire is sort of at the center um, a lot of, as a, of a lot of these myths. So um, one of the first um, myths I wanted to talk about was the Slog Sede of Bruges. Oh man, I'm gonna get destroyed. Okay. <laughs> the Slaw Sede of Bruges na Boyne. Okay, so in Celtic traditions, the Yuletide uh carried with it hauntings of many kinds, right? And so the most pervasive of, of them are the Slaw Sede of Bruges Bru na Boyne. Boyne. The Sidé is a um, uh, mounted, um, sorry, is is a um, a mound where people have um, been buried, right? Like it's a barrow mound, and uh, the slow Sidé is the uh, translates base, basically the people of the Sidé. So these barrow mounds were more than just haunted, right? They were seen as gateways through which the spirits um, were spirits and souls of the dead could pass through. Uh, you know, essentially so like gateways, portals. portals, yeah, gateways to the other side that not only spirits could pass through, but actually living people and uh, mortals could go through. So you could actually travel sort of to the other world or underworld um, via these, um, these mounds. 
So yeah, and on the other side of them, on the other side of that portal was the other world, um, sometimes called the land of the youth or the Isle of the Blessed, um, where people, where souls would sort of continue their quest for wisdom and sort of self-realization, right? So the people of the city, um, it's, it's perhaps another, you know, it's you know also described as the fairy folk, right? So it's another naming of them, or, or fairies are sort of another naming of the people of the Sidae. Um, we've, we've talked about the sort of fairy folk before in here a little bit, um, but basically it's a race of people living perpetually uh, in the city. It's kind of like uh, spirits, essentially. Um, and they live, um, you know, either either there or sort of just beyond in um, houses or these sort of fairy fortresses or castles um, in the other world. Um, but then they use the sort of mound to come through and specifically, you know, at this time of year. And there's reasons that they come so through. So when the veil is thinnest, then it's easier to enter through It's easier portal. to come through it. Okay. Yes. And I think, yeah, it all go it all goes back to this idea of sort of renewal, I think. So um so the Brug Naboin is a great mound. It's located in Ireland, um, along uh, a bend in the Boyne River. So um according to Wikipedia, <laughs> it contains one of the world's most important prehistoric landscapes dating from the Neolithic period. So it includes a large sort of megalithic passage of um, of graves um, called the Newgrange, Douth, and Noth, um, as, as well as like over 90 additional um, monuments. It's actually a world heritage site um, and it's, you know, quite, quite simply an important part of human prehistory. So I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of this before. I have um, not. It's, Okay. I, I never went there. I wanted to go there when I was in Ireland, but I didn't make it. I wish I kind of wish I had though, but it's like a disc shaped mound um, with a wall sort of around it. Um, so if you can sort of picture that it's quite big. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, it has that, it sort of looks very like Celtic Druid like, but you know, there's sort of a, primitive quality to it in some ways, but then in other ways, it's very precise. Um, and um, yeah, it's quite old, probably was added to layer upon layer um, over the over centuries or millennia. Um, but uh, basically, this is a, a particular place, uh, you know, in the Celtic tradition where, um, you know, these, these um, spirits would come through, right? So the elves were actually this was like really their home originally. So um, before the Celts, it was simply just a place to bury. Um, but later the Celtic mystics believed that it was truly the, the home for the Slaw Sidae people. Um, it's sort of the whole mound itself is sort of interwoven with passageways and burial alcoves. Um, one of which is lined up with the rising of the new sun the morning after the solstice, um, which is the 22nd of December. Um, so the Slaw Sidae of Brug Naboin, <laughs> oh man, I know I'm butchering that, um, are thought of as, you know, fairy people um, who come out of their, their mound home during the winter solstice and they go visit the hearths of the devout. So again, the sort of like, you know, um, fireplace fire, the Yule log, they're probably all connected in a lot of ways 
Um, but in particular, um, you know, pe- people are visited through the, the fire of their hearth. Um, so these, these beings, these people, these spirits, um, they come in pairs. Um, one goes to the kitchen, the other to the hearth, um, which, you know, it lives not only at the center of the house, but also at the center of the tradition. So it's here that, um, it's through the, through the hearth that, um, you know, during the long nights leading up to Alba and Arthurin that the spirits visit. Um, so the, the, the spirits are often said to be dressed in traditional Celtic colors of Yule, right, which is yellow, green, and red. So just talking about for a minute the symbolism of those colors, um, red and green, um, we know those as like fairly religious colors. Um, in, in, in this tradition, um, they symbolize uh, animal and plant life respectively. So the red symbolizing animals, flesh, and, and, and green, obviously, sort of plants. Um, and yellow stands for the light of the new sun. Uh, so g- generally not as prominently um, displayed around the house until after uh, the Alban Arthurin. So when the spirits visit, they, tra- they chant runes, um, seeking to inspire acts of kindness and compassion, essentially the Yuletide spirit. So, um, you know, this can manifest in a vision of a better world in the hearts and minds of people. Um, it's also a call for a renewal, um, a, you know, a way for us to sort of rise out of the limitations that we're struggling with, um, the things that keep us sort of tied to the past and find, um, you know, and help us for sort of find a way to live more wholeheartedly in the world and in our lives. It's a deepening and revitalizing uh, of the spirit. So to be inspired um, in, in the tradition of the Yule in the in the pagan Celtic ways was to be infused with the spirit of the Yule, which is essentially, um, and it's a quote, um, to be attuned to the mystery of the universe as it pres- uh, presents itself to us. So, so to gather around this heart on the long nights leading up to Alban Arthurin is to draw close to this sort of this sort of spirit and the source of source of life itself, right? Heat, mm-hmm. warmth, light, mm-hmm. um, and you know it signifies this sort of spark um, and this fire, which is is seen as the light of the soul. Right, so and the day is about to grow longer too. The days are now about mm-hmm. to grow longer, even though it's the beginning of winter, which seems in a way is sort of counterintuitive, but um, yeah. So yeah. So in other words, right. The spirit of Christmas, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I just think it's such an interesting and sort of beautiful myth because, you know, we, we talk about the spirit of Christmas and, you know, and, and what that means and sort of the, you know, you know, Christian religion and the Western world, sort of modern world. And we think about, you know, that, that feeling of generosity um, you know, taking care of each other, you know, thinking about others, giving gifts, right? This sort of uh, largesse, um, you know, is is definitely a part of that sort of like Christmas spirit, which is certainly part of the solstice spirit. Right. right? And it's which kind of certainly... condensing it all down to the sense of like a light in the darkness. Yeah. And even, you know, when we've talked about afterlife or near-death experiences and and, and that's kind of you know, at the very 
base of it, like what happens where people encounter this light and go into it and sort of a parallel, interesting parallel. Yeah. And you think about like, you know, the Christmas Carol, for instance, right? Which many sort of remark that it's like an odd myth, you know, that it's sort of like this ghost story, essentially, (laughs) this guy being visited by these sort of three ghosts, but it very much, and I assume that Dickens, you know, was fully aware of the the Yuletide and, and, and the idea of being visited by spirits to help draw out uh, that sense of renewal. Um, Certainly that's what the Christmas Carol is about, right? This man who's sort of a stingy, scroogey (laughs) person who is sort of, um, you know, inspired through the visions of these spirits to um, lead a better life, to, you know, uh, uh, you know, see others as more important than, than he did before. And I think, yeah, there's something really um, interesting about that. Um, so there's other myths around, you know, around this, the, the wandering stranger or the mysterious guest um, in which, you know, you might hear a knock at the door uh, and when you answer someone in need, might be in need of food and shelter. Um, and the stranger sort of will ask you for uh, food and a place to sleep. And so the idea is to sort of take them in and give them assistance. And that if you're sort of visited by this, it, it's representing this sort of need coming from the um, the spirit world. Um, and sort of one last, um, uh, you know, bit of... Um, correlation or, or, you know, perhaps even um, origin of the idea of St. Nicholas, right, was um, the idea of this saint, you know, at this time being sort of inspired to help children um, and that he was, you know, um, he was visited by these elves, (laughs) right, which were essentially the the same as the, um, you know, these people, these spirit people, uh, the like the Slaws today, um, who you know helped him in his sort of endeavors, and that he set up this whole sort of quote workshop. Um, so this idea of like you know Saint Nicholas, um, who was perhaps the saint from you know many many uh, centuries ago. Um, some say in Turkey, some say in other places, but you know it's certainly this idea of um, this saint sort of. Um, you know, embodying the spirit of Yuletide, embodying the spirit of of Christmas uh, and helping children has kind of been around for a very long time and has itself sort of permutated and, and um, you know, transformed and evolved and, and so on all the way until, you know, the modern conception of Santa Claus, which we've we've talked about a little bit on here. So, yeah, so that was... That was the um, spirit of the Yule Tide. Wow, and the really beautiful, really, really beautiful. <laughs> you know, like and, and heart. It is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've always said, like, you know, I think I've said on here before, like, I definitely believe in the spirit of Christmas, and I mean that in a very, like, I don't know, like, literal. I don't mean that in a literal way, right? Like, there is something about this time of year in it. I don't know. It feels um, very sort of essential. It feels very of the natural world and of the spirit spirit world. Um, again, again, this idea of renewal, birth and death, and just like I don't know, trying to grow outside of ourselves a little bit more. 
uh, each time, I think is, yeah, there's something beautiful about it. So For sure. Yeah, and we talked before about, you know, many times about liminal spaces and it's kind of, mm. it's a liminal yes. time, you know, where you have the yes. two, you know, the darkest night of the between. year. Yep, the space yep. in between. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's super cool. Thank you. So, yeah, yeah. Cool. So do you want to do yours and then we'll do... The gift exchange? The, yeah, yeah. Yay. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. So <clears throat> I basically have a few ghost stories and this is like a long tradition that goes back, you know, the holidays, Christmas, the winter solstice. It's viewed as, you know, Seth, you were saying that, you know, the veil is the thinnest at this time between, and it completely makes sense. You have the darkest night of the year you know it's often the coldest but it's just before the dawn and when the days start getting longer and anyway it's traditionally lent itself to ghost stories which we may not think about right now you know I'll, you know i think a lot of us watch those hallmark movies at least i do <laughs> at christmas time but the Vic during the Victorian era, especially, the Christmas ghost story was a really strong tradition, especially in England. And I have a few to share, and they all do hail from the UK, the ones that I've got today. So, okay. um, yeah. I'm starting out with one uh, just because I love this author, uh, Emily Bronte. And I just learned okay. this. I didn't know that there was actually like a ghost, a real ghost story associated with her. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. So she's best known for her gothic novel, Wuthering Heights, uh, which is an epic story of obsessive love, passion, and kind of a love-hate relationship, and also a literal haunting. Um, Emily Bronte oh, was okay. born on July 30th of 1818 in Yorkshire, England. She was one of three sisters, all of whom were writers, and a brother named Branwell. And very little is known about her life. And she remains quite mysterious, and her life was tragically cut short. One thing that's been said is that their father was a very brooding and kind of melancholy person, which probably helped shape the character of Heathcliff, um, and in December of 1847, she published Wuthering Heights, her major work, and you know, I think only you know major novel. Unlike her sister Charlotte's experience, Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre, which is also amazing and a novel I've, I've loved since I was young. Um, that one became an instant hit, but Wuthering Heights wasn't very well received by critics at first, and you can imagine she's devoted a lot of her life to writing. Her sister has become successful. This would probably be very painful. Um, eventually, Wuthering Heights came to be considered one of the finest novels in the English language. But at, during the time when she was living, when she first published it, it, that wasn't the case. And then tragically, a very short time after Wuthering Heights was published, Emily became ill with tuberculosis and she died only a year later on December 19th of 1848. Adding to the tragedy, 
she was three months pregnant when she passed away, and I hadn't known this before looking into the story. But it's said that to this day, much like the heroine Catherine of her famous book, she still roams the grounds of her former home. So sightings tend to occur on either side of the date of her death. So in the few days surrounding, you know, either before or after December 19th, she will often appear with her head bowed down as if she's deep in thought and she vanishes if you try to draw closer. And interestingly, her sister Charlotte's ghost is also said to haunt her former residence. So this is... Both of their books have like these strong gothic traits. You know, you've got the woman in the attic, you have ghosts, and they're both associated with literal ghost stories, which I found fascinating, and I hadn't known that before. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it is. I, I, yeah, I didn't really know much about her. Have you read either one of those books? No, I haven't, actually. No. Highly recommend to anybody listening if you haven't read them, Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights. Especially if you have cool. a love, if you're a romantic <laughs> at heart and you have a love for the gothic. Okay. So the next one um, is another infamous UK uh, Christmas ghost story. And this ghost appears in Suffolk's historic Ruse Hall. So according to legend, on Christmas Eve a carriage can be seen emerging from the darkness and speeding down the lane toward the house. His wheels make no sound as it approaches, but as it draws closer, witnesses can see that something else is terribly out of place. Its driver and all four of the jet black horses that lead it are headless. Uh-oh. Yeah. So sometimes, though, if you keep watching, the spectral carriage will stop in front of the red brick house and a beautiful woman will emerge. But you shouldn't look at her. Onlookers are cautioned to turn away because meeting her gaze allegedly could bring madness or even death. But at other times, this carriage approaches, stops, and suddenly disappears into the night mist. So the place that it's said to stop has a horrific past. There's an ancient gnarled oak tree there called Nelson's Tree, and criminals were once executed by hanging there. So not only have their ghosts been seen on the grounds of Ruse Hall, but apparently witnesses have also reported seeing a lady wearing white and a man with her wearing these torn trousers and a brown jacket. And they literally haunt the spot where these men were hanged. And the woman has been sighted walking around the tree six times, which is reportedly to summon the devil. And as word spread of this happening, other people, of course, have flocked here and have tried to do the same thing. So she's not the only one who's attempted this. And no one knows if it's been successful, but it, it, it's um, an event that has uh, taken place on these grounds. Wow. Okay, cool. So I have one more, and it's the story okay. of, of the mistletoe bride. 
Oh, okay, cool. Okay. So on Christmas Eve in the 17th century, a wedding took place between Hugh Bethel, who was a young lord of a stately old manor, and a lovely young woman named Anne Cope. So the location of this manor has been the subject of debate. Some say it was Castle Hornbeck, some say Bramshill House, and others say that the most likely location is Minster Lovell Hall, which was built in 1440. But it was very old and very large with many rooms. So in honor of the season, the bride carried a bouquet made of mistletoe. It was a beautiful ceremony, and a group of their closest kin and friends had made the journey to celebrate the happy couple. During the wedding party and before the newlyweds headed off to their bedchamber, the bride, Anne, suggested they play a game of hide-and-seek with a groom as the seeker. So this is a large, very stately manor. As I said, many rooms. There would be plenty of places to hide. Anne was the first to dart out of the room with a mischievous glee in search of the perfect hiding spot. And in some versions of the story, she actually asked for a five-minute head start to go hide. One by one, the other guests found places to hide themselves, and the groom stayed back and counted down. It took him a while, but little by little, all of the guests were discovered, except one. No one could find Anne. They combed through some of the more obvious spots, like closets or behind furniture, the places you'd look under a bed, etc., before moving on to more obscure rooms in the manor. Finally, they walked through the hallways, calling out to her, letting her know the game was done, she's the clear winner, but there was no answer. And at first they thought she must be playing some kind of trick or practical joke. But as minutes turned into an hour, they still hadn't found her. And they began to grow worried. And then panic set in. The hours multiplied. Hours later, and every inch of the mansion scou scoured, there was no sign of the young bride. So the groom very distraught, refused to sleep the entire night, and he kept up the search. He extended it out to the grounds and the surrounding countryside, and she was nowhere to be found. His bride had literally vanished into the depths of the house and was never seen again. So eventually, you know, as you would do, it was assumed that this had been some kind of twisted plan to get out of the marriage and jilt her husband after the altar. The Lord was devastated. This was something he never could have anticipated because they had seemed very happy and in love. He was sure she had loved him. And even when days and later months of her absence persisted, and confirmed that she'd abandoned him, something in him still found it exceedingly difficult to accept. His, heart his heartbreak ran so deep that he never remarried, but he remained in Bramshill House or wherever it was for the next five decades. 
it seemed that some part of him never gave up hope for her return. So, when he was a very old man and stooped over in gray on what would have been their 50th wedding anniversary, the jilted groom made his way into the attic of the house. Perhaps he was in search of some long stored away mementos. Perhaps he was retracing his steps from that fateful game of hide and seek decades earlier. But as he stepped into the cold and musty room, he was said to have been struck by a sudden urge to knock the old wood paneling on one side of the walls. Maybe the boards didn't look quite right, or maybe it was something else guiding him. But with his knocks, the panels gave way, opening a door to his secret room. Dust motes swirled as he made his way into the darkness, the flickering of his candle casting long shadows against the far wall, and in the center of the room stood a large, ornately carved wooden chest. His hands were trembling at this point, and he fumbled to unlatch it. The lid was exceedingly heavy, and as he lifted it, he was greeted by a horrific sight. There, clutching the bouquet of mistletoe and wearing her beautiful lace gown, now yellowed with time, was the long-decayed corpse of his long-lost bride, Anne. His eyes welled with tears as he saw the deep scratch marks on the underside of the lid. She had never left him, after all. And it's said that to this day, both their ghosts still roam the halls of the manor. Oh my God, dude, what a story. Wow. <laughs> it's like an Edgar Allan Poe story. I, I know, that's why I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's crazy. I didn't see that coming. I mean, as soon as like, he, like he's touching the you didn't? wall or whatever. Okay, right? cool. Well, no, that, I mean, yeah, I was like, What's, what happened to her? What happened to her? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there are well, different versions the of this, and the and the and the site of you know, you know, there's there's some contention on whether this happened, you know, at, at sure, you know this place course, or that yeah. place, and even right. you know the person maybe she wasn't named Anne. There's some rumors that she was an Italian woman, and you know, you know, different details they vary. But I I found this to be a very compelling story, and just like something about it just really grabbed me. Wow. Yeah. It was a and good it's one. so romantic yeah. in a creepy way. Totally. Yeah, and she's clutching a, a um, bouquet of mistletoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That was All great. right. So that's what I got. Those are my ghost stories. Cool. Those are great. Yeah, I like I like the uh, I like the themes. Um, what um? So what do you want to you want to do our gift exchange Yay. now? Or? Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to see what you got. Okay. Me. Okay. Okay. What, do, do you want to go first or you want me to go first? Either way. All what right, I guess I'll go first then. Okay. Well, I mean, as you're, this was a great idea of yours, which is to exchange stories, right, right, for our listeners. We're exchanging stories that we thought the other person would want to hear, right? That was the idea? Yes. In the spirit of Christmas or the Yuletide. By the way, I looked up the um, Sede, it's she, it's pronounced sloshy, like it's S-I-D-H-E. Like it looks like it says today, but it's she. 
which is weird. But hmm. anyways, just pre-correcting. <laughs> just wanted to correct that before we moved on. Okay. Um, right. okay. So, um, okay. So now you're present. Okay. So okay. this is a story that I'm pretty sure you wanted to hear. And it's a, sh- it's a short one, but um, it is the story of the Joplin butterfly people. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love just this. what you always wanted. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, on May second, two thousand eleven, uh, a deadly tornado devastated devastated a small town in Missouri called Joplin. Um, it was an unexpected and tragic event, um, one in which many people died. However. Um, as the dust began to settle, stories emerged that told of many lives that were spared that day. Uh, and many people say due to the presence of what were described as the butterfly people. So, um, you know, many uh, there's many versions, uh, uh, many sightings of w- what happened, uh, many stories by described by children and adults um, alike. But the underpinning of the stories remain the same. Um, as the uh, tornado hurled towards some, um, a butterfly person, quote, would hover above them, protecting them um, as the wind surged around them and left them unharmed. So as more um, accounts came in, more and more children came forward with their with their own experiences. Uh, some described them as small people with butterfly wings, like two or three feet tall <laughs> like, like tinkerbell butter- yeah well tinkerbell is still pretty small like these were like yeah like three feet tall i don't know oh, okay. three feet, three feet. Yeah. but it was they were like yeah small people small people with um with butterfly wings and then others described him as angels uh and some simply said they felt some kind of indescribable presence um so one story uh, is of a mother and a daughter who were uh, running from their car as the tornado bore down on them. Um, they fell to the ground. The mother sort of like grabbed the girl and tried to cover her up. Um, and they watched as their car got like picked up and thrown by the tornado. And they just basically hoped for the best. Um, and the tornado passed um, over them or by them and they survived unscathed. Um, afterwards, the young girl told her mother that, quote, they were pretty. And when her mother asked what um, the young girl saw, what, what she's talking about, she said the butterfly people. Um, in another version of the story, the young girl reports seeing them actually lift uh, men and women into the sky. So um, uh, Emily. Really? Hudson, like who- she saw actually like. She saw them actually. uh lifting people yeah that was one of the reports was that they were like kind of like picking them up and you know i I guess moving them out of the way or something like that um uh emily huddleston who was 14 that day um you know what was there she said she was um traveling with her mother um across the town when um the a tornado actually picked up their vehicle and threw it uh, hundreds of yards into the air, right? So literally they're in the car and they get swept up in the tornado and thrown and basically crash back down. Um, and Emily's leg was 
uh, um, you know, impaled on the, you know, on some, some piece of metal or something like that. She was injured, but otherwise they survived. Right. So, you know, they basically drove through a tornado and, um, you know, uh, um, you know, she, she walked away with this injury, but, but still she, she essentially walked away. And she said during the months after, as she was sort of walking around the sort of barren landscape, you know, I don't know if this was before, um, or after these sort of butterfly people stories had coming out. She said that out of nowhere, she was sort of encircled by all these butterflies flying around her. Um, and she says in a, in a video, um, there was no reason for the butterflies to even be there. She said there was no like trees or, or anything, you know, around them. And they were just sort of like a, a flock of them coming through. And she felt that they were a quote, a sign that angels are still here and watching over us. Um, and wow. they're not leaving. Wow. So that is the story wow. of the butterfly people, which Aww. I think is a really beautiful one. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like, you know, it's it's hard to tell, you know, even like in the descriptions I read, like how much of a, um, you know, what was this something that, you know, people were sort of the story that was sort of passed around to help people sort of process sort of some of the tragedy around or, you know, a lot of the reports were sort of secondhand, but there was mm-hmm. still something interesting just about the idea of like the butterfly, like, I don't know, it's just like, um you know, it's not like the kids were going like, oh, there's angels, right? Like, right. you know, you, you imagine in Missouri people. You would think that would be the go-to. That you would think that Bible would be the Bible Belt go-to. or, yeah. Right. Right. That like, you know, certainly we all know what sort of like, you know, uh, a Western or, or Judeo-Christian sort of, you know, angel looks like, uh, you know, or even, you know, um, in other religions, they're all sort of depicted with these like very um, – dove-like wings right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in this case like you know that there are these butterfly wings that they were some of them saw them as small and i don't know there's just something really interesting about that to me absolutely um, it's so specific and it's something that's associated so with specific, this particular yeah. tragedy you know it's yeah. it's not yeah uh, right, right i haven't heard about it associated with any other natural disaster maybe it is but i i haven't heard of it but yeah, and then like this this girl who had this experience of like surviving this tragic event and then sort of being surrounded by these butterflies. And we know that butterflies migrate and stuff, but I don't know. You have to be in these moments where like, I don't know, I th- you know, I think a lot of people have been like visited by a bird, by a dead, after, a, you know, after a, uh, someone close to them has, you know, passed, you know, right. that that's not, that's a, that's a not uncommon thing to happen that someone would be sort of visited by some type of like wing creature usually a, mm-hmm. you know, a and bird. a butterfly is a symbol of uh regeneration and resurrection yeah. you know yeah. new life kind yeah. of a thing yeah 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 totally so anyways i thought oh thought you would want to hear that one so. thank you seth so yep. thanks so that's great i love it great um so do you want to know what i got you yes <laughs> Okay, so we all know that you love gnomes and bubble cars. Oh, oh my God. Which we covered in our gnomes episode. Okay, don't get too excited. Don't get too excited. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's another bubble car. Okay, story? Uh, well, 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 okay, just, just. Oh, yeah. All right. So 
Uh, I figured you might appreciate something that was even stranger and unclassifiable, <laughs> but also reported by children. And so this is the story of Sam the Sandown Clown. Okay. Okay. So it takes place on a late afternoon in May of 1973. And it was allegedly witnessed by two children, a boy and a girl around the same age. The girl went by a pseudonym Faye. The boy was never named. And they were from the small resort town of Sandown, which is on the Isle of Wight's east coast. So one day the children were outside playing and they wandered into the Shanklin and Sandown Golf Club where they began exploring the rolling hills as you would do, you know, as a kid. I don't know if you ever did. I, I, I did, I think, like just kind of wandered into a golf course at some point. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And all at once, though, they were startled by a very strange monotone wailing sound that must have been very disturbing to them. It sounded sort of like an ambulance siren. And so as they listened, they realized it was emanating from an area of this swampy meadow, which was close to a little used local airport. So they were curious and they wanted to see what was causing this. So they decided to head in that direction and they had to cross through a hedge and they eventually made their way over these rolling green hills into a, onto a footbridge that was positioned over a stream. And as they grew closer, the siren sound suddenly stopped. And at this point, they were crossing the little footbridge and they saw a blue gloved hand appear from underneath the bridge. And then following it was a very tall figure. So it was new. They said later, nearly seven feet tall. And its head seemed to sit like squarely on its shoulders, like it had no neck. And it was wearing what looked like a green spandex tunic, white pants, a red collar around its non-neck area, <laughs> and a pointed yellow hat that had these wooden antennas on top, like an insect's. And the hat connected then to this red collar. It's a very specific outfit. Peeking out of the top of the hat was this tuft of red hair, like bangs, I'm imagining. But its face (laughs) was even stranger looking. It had triangular eyes, a square-shaped nose, and yellow lips that didn't move. And its cheeks were white as paper. So to the children, it looked like this weird looking clown and it was holding a book in its hands. And when it saw the kids approach, it was apparently startled and it dropped the book into the stream. It then leaned over, fished out this now drenched book and then ran away. Only it didn't run. It made these enormous bounding hops with its knees raised up in the air, almost like it was in the state of lowered gravity. And as the children watched, the entity fled into what looked like a windowless metal hut kind of structure. And it came back out a moment later with a device that turned out to be some sort of small microphone with a black knob. So 
It bounded back to where the children were standing, doing this weird hopping motion I'm imagining. And the monotone siren sound blared again for a moment, which some people are speculating that it was feedback. So this time, the siren was even louder, and it was so loud that the boy was scared, and he started to run away. So then this clown thing began speaking to the children into the microphone, and it wasn't moving its yellow lips at all because they're, like, immobile for whatever reason. And it said, hello, are you still here? But its tone sounded friendly, and so their fear evaporated and gave way to curiosity, and they ventured a little closer to it. At this point, it wrote something in large letters in a notebook. It wrote, hello, and I am all colors, Sam. And the words were arranged (laughs) in this strange jumbled order. But Faye, the little girl, read them in sequence as this clown thing pointed them out to her. So basically it's saying, hello, I'm Sam and I am all colors. I don't know what that, I mean, because he's colorful, colorfully dressed, I don't know. Um, The children said that it could speak without the aid of the microphone, but they described its speaking style as very stilted and it sounded kind of like a ventriloquist act or someone who wasn't opening their mouth properly all the way to form the words. So almost like you're kind of talking like this, I guess. Um, So Sam started asking the kids questions about themselves and being very friendly, and they immediately felt comfortable doing the same. They asked about his clothes, which looked like they had been torn and ripped up and like kind of shabby. And he said that he he only had the one set of clothes to wear. So that's why they look like that. And then Faye asked the clown thing if it was a man and it answered no with this sort of chuckle like no (laughs) 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 and then they asked him if it was a ghost you can imagine little kids are kind of like what is this thing should we be scared and sam said well not really but i am in an odd sort of way and then the kids asked well what are you then and sam (laughs) answered I think creepily, you know. So, I know. (laughs) This clown creature then went on to explain that he had no actual name, even though he was calling himself Sam, and that there were others just like him here on Earth. And he, I mean, I keep assuming his gender here, also said he was afraid of humans and that, that they might attack him if he were discovered. So he felt that he was in danger and kind of gave the kids the impression that if he were attacked, he wouldn't fight back or wouldn't be able to fight back. So he then invited the children into his metal hut and they followed him inside, which bad idea, but this was the seven yeah, days. So yeah, not a, not <laughs> a good idea. Not a good idea. Um, but they had to crawl through a flap to get inside. And then the kids said that the interior of the structure only held an electric heater and, a, and like very simple wooden furniture. And it had two levels. And on the upper level, it was more cramped and less spacious. And it had metal floors. So Sam said that in addition to this like sweet metal hut, he also had a secret campsite. Um, But he didn't tell them where that was located, so they didn't know. And just when you think things are as weird as they can get, they get a little weirder. 
So he told the kids that the, he basically fed on berries. This is what he ate. And he collected them in the late afternoon. And so then at this point, he takes off his pointy hat with the antenna and reveals these round white ears. And he's got this thin brown hair, even though his like a bangs are apparently red. And he he places a berry in one of his ears. And then he does this like thrusting motion with his head at which point the berry kind of like rolls forward and then appears in his eye socket. <laughs> and then <laughs> he repeats the motion and the berry kind of shifts place into his mouth. Um, so yeah, that that's, that's weird. Um, so <laughs> for the next half an hour, these kids just hung out with Sam, the seven foot clown in his metal hut. And asked him more questions and he gave these kind of weird cryptic vague answers um but finally you know they had to leave they went back home and on the way they encountered the golf course groundskeeper so they're all excited and they told him about sam and what they just experienced and he laughed it off and just you know oh you kids ha ha you know your imaginations but both children were convinced that what they'd experienced was real. And Faye said that after being brushed off, she had to wait a few weeks before telling her father because she kind of felt like, oh, no one's going to believe me. And she did. She told her dad. And at first he, of course, thought this is like pretty unbelievable. But he was really astounded at the level of detail in her story. So he apparently took it seriously enough that he went back out explored the area, but he could find no trace of either Sam or this metal hut. And it remains a mystery to this day. And I think the only sighting of this creature on record, the Sandown Clown. Wow. I love it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is great. Thank you. So this was in the Isle of Wight. Yeah. 1973. Yeah. Early 70s. Isle of Wight, which is part of the... UK of England, right? Mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. I okay, guess I'm so all UK like today. Rural ish, right? Or mm -hmm. is it? I don't know. I was imagining Maybe this it's... was like a forest setting. Uh -huh. But I think it's like okay. a seaside a little seaside resort town. Gotcha. Okay. And okay, so can we talk about like what it looked like again? It was seven yes. foot tall. Seven feet tall. It, it was where do you want me to go into the outfit? Yes. Yes. Okay. So it was wearing white pants, a green tunic. It had on, even though it had no neck, its head was just kind of resting on its shoulders. So you couldn't see the neck. It had a red collar going around. And it was wearing like a, a yellow hat that had like wooden antennas. I'm imagining they had balls at the end coming out. And, and I, right. we can post and I will share with you a drawing of this. There's, there's drawings? Oh my God. Yeah, there are drawings. I love it. Um, of what this thing looks like. Um, and apparently it had blue gloves on its hands. So it's very colorful. Uh, and it had like a, a tuft of hair that was coming out from the, the hat in the front, I think. And it was like reddish hair. Um, and then its face had triangle-shaped eyes, a square nose, and yellow lips, but the lips didn't move, and its face was like white, white. So it was kind of like clown makeup looking white cheeks. And or was it like 
like it sounds like a puppet or something, right? Like it sounds like kind of or, right? or like, like a mask. Like was this like a like creepy a person, like with this very ornate, you know, or an alien get up or <laughs> exactly or it's aliens. Yeah. Well, I mean, with a metal the, house, right? Right, the metal and, house, and then the upstairs. You know, there's this metallic floor. You know, who knows? Was there like, you know control center there is it a spaceship yeah, is it like some it was gone yeah right right yeah it kind of was like it's... part robot part clown part who knows no. what else <laughs> oh my god i love it yeah so wow that's so weird it's so it's such a weird story right and it's not a disturbing story no i mean no it's not I mean, they didn't. I mean, like sound the, the way it moved kind were... of sounded very Spring Hill Jack, but like, right. yeah, the bounding, the, the hopping with the with the knees the up in the air, yeah, kind of like it's springing, like boing yeah. boing boing, and then it goes on. <laughs> but almost like it had a different gravity. I mean, that's so weird. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. but then like the shabby clothes, like so many things about this story are so bizarre. Right, um, it's got one, you know, one change of clothes. And, uh, yeah, weird colors. Sam and I am all colors. Right. Sam and I am all colors. I love it. <laughs> we need more stories like this. We need, I bet there's like, I mean, like, so these are the ones like you hear about, right? Mm-hmm. But there's got to be other ones that you don't, too. Absolutely. You know, can you imagine how many stories don't actually make it out there? Right, that people see things, mm-hmm. experience things, and then they're like, oh, fuck it, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And just like keep it with them or don't, yeah, or just, or or they tell close, you know, people close to them, but that it doesn't get picked up or whatever, right? Like, I feel like the, the bubble car driving gnomes, that, even that one, like, didn't they show up later and like cause like delays on the, like on the subway or something i feel like there was other reasons why even the bubble car driving Mm -hmm. gnomes got talked about like it was more than one occurrence and then there was like something something to do with them stopping traffic or something like that so this brings me i have one last little gift for you oh you do a stocking stuffer (laughs) stocking exactly it's a stocking stuffer okay so the gnomes of is it wollaton park incident that you covered with the bubble car driving gnomes so a British historian named Simon Young has recently edited a book about it and the phenomenon of gnomes in general and kind of taken a deep dive into the story and I think tried to interview people as adult the kids as adults. And a those new kids. Yes, those kids. So a new edition is coming out soon and I wrote to him hoping that he would spill some sweet oh new God. gnome oh news. <laughs> so he didn't give me any specific <laughs> stories, but he said he'd be open to being a guest on the show. Yes. Wow. Okay, we got to make that happen. We got to make that happen. That would be great. Um. So he talked to some of these these kids who saw the gnomes. I as think adults. that was the intention. So I don't know for sure if he if that ended up happening, but I think that was the intention because right. he put the word out um a few years back and was like, hey, you know, 
I'm looking to interview people that have experienced these bubble car driving gnomes. I love it. Okay, (laughs) we got to get them on the show. Um, We got to get one of the kids on the show that (laughs) absolutely saw the saw the gnomes. Um, What was the what was the book called? It. Oh, I got to look it up. I got to look it up. Something with gnome in the title, though. Okay. You know, something with with a Wollaton gnomes or something like that. Right. Okay. We'll definitely have to get a copy of that. Maybe. We'll but I was happy that, that you know he he's he's interested in potentially being a guest, so we'll follow up with that. Yeah, next that'd be year. great. Yep, yep. Cool. Well, that was great. Well, thank you for the stocking stuffer as well. Like, well, I definitely yeah. love a gnome. Story. Thank you. And- thank you for the <laughs> yeah. Well. Um. Well, cool. I feel like we did. Did we do our, our winter solstice? We did our winter Christmas, solstice. Merry Christmas. Happy exchange, holidays. Right? All yep. of it. Thank Happy you. Holidays. And I just want to say thank you, too, to the people that have left us some lovely reviews. Um, if you haven't done so and you're enjoying the show, please go do it. I mean, that's a gift to us, and um, it's a free way to support the show and help us grow and also help other people find out about it. Yeah, totally. Yep. Thanks for listening and um, hope everyone has a great holiday and a happy new year. And we'll see you guys in the Merry new year. Merry Christmas. Yeah? Happy holidays. And, uh, and follow us on Instagram. Happy winter and, solstice. <laughs> yes. Have a happy winter solstice. Stay safe, everybody. And we love you. Thank you for listening. Yep. Until next time. Until next time. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Shadowland Podcast is produced by Seth Jablon and Christina Callery. Edited by Tim Kelly. Theme music by Tim Lincoln. Thanks, Tim. 